Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by guest Geraldine Carter. Geraldine, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cool. It's hard to say Geraldine twice right in a row. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm glad to talk to you. Just for some background for the dear listener, Geraldine sent in an email uh, asking about how to do value pricing or, or coming up, not necessarily value pricing, but some pricing ideas for forensic accountants. So Geraldine, could you sort of give folks a little bit of your background just so they have a feel for uh, the context? Sure, yeah. So I work with CPAs to help them update their business models because they tend to operate in a volume-based system where they charge by the hour and they have to take on a lot of clients in order to make the numbers pencil. Um, And we work to shift them to a value-based model where they can provide high value for many fewer clients and get them inside a niche. So I'm working with CPAs to help them get their time back, have a more sane life, and provide better service to their business-owning clients. Okay. And how did you get into coaching CPAs? Because you're not an accountant yourself, right? Yes. So I co-founded a business with a friend in 2008. And because I have a math and engineering background, I fell into the managing the money role. And when I first met with our accountant and she showed me the profit and loss and the balance sheet, and I was like, what is this? (laughs) And she's walking me through the P&L and I'm going, yeah, 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 I get the math. But what I need to know is am I going to have enough money to pay my expenses in August? It's June and you're talking to me about April. So mm-hmm. I immediately sort of started butting heads with my accountant. I didn't understand why that was, but now I appreciate what accountants do and the value of it. And I also understand what business owners need, which is much more cash flow forecasting scenario planning. And mm-hmm. because I learned that language from the business owner side and because as a business owner, I understood that perspective, but I also really enjoy understanding the accounting side. I can speak both languages to both people. So it, that's, there's sort of a longer weaving story, but that's the sort of short answer for how I ended up where I am is that I can speak to both sides and help them understand each other and help bridge the gap with services that are really what the business owner is looking for that helps the accountant charge for what they're charged for the value of what they're doing. Cool. So as you know, uh, folks listening to this podcast are probably not accountants. So just to, as a note to the dear listener, what we're going to talk about is how to price kind of an ongoing service where the scope is really unknown. So I know that that will, uh, I know that 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 is something that the listeners of this show really care about. And I find it uh, helpful to sometimes talk about a different industry because it's, it feels less threatening because it's kind of foreign and it's not It's not like their skin is in the game and it's sometimes easy to see the forest for the trees when we're talking about a different kind of business. So I think that there would be value here for folks, even if they're not interested in accounting per se. Okay, so with that said, the specific question you had was around a forensic accounting. Could you kind of describe what that is? Yeah. So forensic accounting is like the cops and robbers of the finance industry. So oftentimes what you'll have is some kind of what they'll say is malfeasance. Basically, you can think of it like maybe one business partner is um, is stealing money from the business and the other business partner suspects that something is up, but they don't really know how to prove it. They just know that the numbers don't look right. Um, and you may know this as embezzlement or um, and, and so on. So what happens is the business owner who has a sneaking suspicion doesn't really know how to figure this out. Mm-hmm. 
typically they engage an attorney and the attorney says we need to engage an accountant to dig into the books, to dig yep. into the finances and see what they find. Mm -hmm. So it's up to the, the accountant, the CPA to start opening boxes, to start looking <laughs> under covers, to start digging at stuff to kind of figure out where the malfeasance is happening, where the sort of, uh, what the pathways are for the stealing. Mm -hmm. And, um, once they uncover the pathways, there typically are not that many of them. It just gets put on repeat. So, um, so the accountant is, you know, the first order of business is to try and understand what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And then after that, to try and dig in and look at like overturn a bunch of different stones until they find, aha, here's what's going on. This doesn't look right. I need to dig into this. Mm -hmm. And then they dig, dig, dig some more and they, what they need to really what they need to do is find sufficient evidence so that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt in court that there has been malfeasance and that there needs to be a court decision in the um in the business owner's favor mm -hmm. so they're not necessarily looking you hope to recoup some of the money but really what they're looking for is proof beyond a reasonable doubt okay and then what is the it, what would be a likely outcome? Like, is it, is, is their greatest hope? You started to say maybe recoup some money, but maybe not, that's not the, the good guy's greatest hope or the, the wronged business owner is, is their greatest hope to just have a clean way out of the relationship or um, like w what? Their greatest hope is to know the truth. Okay. They want to so, know what's going on. Okay. So an equally valuable or, or an equal, equally valuable outcome would be that there's nothing going on. You're imagining it. Yes. Yep. Okay. So, and I know you're not a CPA, but I wonder if you know enough to answer this question. Is there a, is there a phase early, early ish, let's say, because it sounds like a lot of digging and a lot of, you know, opening up shoe boxes, going through receipts, which sounds like a lot of work. Is there a phase at which the CPA generally is like, yes, yeah, something's definitely going on. We don't know what yet and we don't know the extent of it, but something's definitely not right. Yeah. So back to your question about, can I answer it to like, how much can I answer it? I would say, yes, I wouldn't be able to say what I wouldn't be able to say is how long it takes to get to that place or what needs to be done to get to that place. Mm -hmm. But I've got to imagine that they, you know, they get handed the box that is the business, the books, the shoe boxes, and so on, mm -hmm. the QuickBooks file and everything. And they're going to go through these things methodically. And in going through, through these things methodically, they're either going to find it on step two or on step four, mm -hmm. but they're going to find it or they're not going to find it. Mm -hmm. And at some finite point, whether it's, let's pretend six places that they look, mm -hmm. at, some point, at some point, they're going to say, you know what? I've looked everywhere in this box and I'm just not seeing anything in all the usual places. So we could keep digging, but it's going to be diminishing returns of likelihood. Right. Okay. So uh, just as an outsider, it does seem like there is an initial phase that could be fixed price as a productized service, not necessarily mm -hmm. value priced, but it could be fixed price to say, you know, step one is to answer the question whether or not something's going on. And a yes or a no is going to be equally valuable. In fact, the yes might even mm -hmm. be better, which yeah. means, you know, like 
like you hired me for no reason. Well, it wasn't no reason. It was to get rid of these doubts that you have about your business partner. So I could imagine a scenario where someone, a CPA, targets a particular kind of market that's going to have a shoebox that's roughly the same size. So mm -hmm. so they, someone comes along, you know, they have on their website, it's like, hey, you uh, think your business partner's cooking the books? Find out yes or no uh, if something's going on. And it's, and for this particular, you know, knowing their target market, if it's really focused and, you know, like companies that have between 500 and 1,000 employees or companies that have up to 50 employees or something like that, um, yeah. or companies of a certain size in a particular industry, because maybe different industries have dramatically different bookkeeping um, level of effort, let's say. Yes, yes. But if, if they know their industry and they're highly focused, or maybe they have a different productized service for different bands of people in their target market, different segments of their target market, could say something like, I could picture a comparison chart where it's like, how many employees do you have? What industry are you in? And here, boom, here's your price for a yes or no answer that something's going on or not. Mm -hmm. So that would be, that would be one approach. And then the, um, but not certainly not the only approach. So that would be potentially um, a productized service and depending on, you know, that segmented down so that every price point has a relatively fixed scope of involvement from the CPA. That's not value pricing. You could also value price it though, where someone comes along and they say, Hey, we got your name from someone. I think my, my partner's uh, engaged in shenanigans. Uh, and I really, I really just need to know yes or no. And, and if it turns out yes, then we can talk about what happens next. But it does seem like a pretty clean phase, like a pretty clean um, end phase. Yeah. And it does to me too. And I think the helpful piece is if you split it into say three sizes, of company, right? Because the larger company is going to have a larger box, probably with more compartments inside it, mm -hmm. which is going to, of course, take more time. So I think that gets past one of the one main protest, which sounds something like, um, I don't want to flat, <laughs> they actually say this, I don't want to go flat fee because if I charge them $10,000 and it's $30,000 worth of work, then I'm going to lose my shirt. Alternatively, right. I don't want to charge them $30,000 and have it only be $10,000 worth of work because then I'm going to feel guilty. So <laughs> they kind of put themselves in a box there. And I think the sort of spreading out of, I mean, there are two things in play. The One of them, which you're talking about, is the spreading out the kind of by company size, if you will. Um, and then the, the sort of mental piece of getting past the guilt of charging too much money in your own eyes. But that's a separate topic. That's a, that, <laughs> Yes, that's a topic for a psychiatrist. So, the, so here, but let's address it for a second. I'm kidding, but let's, let's actually address that. So the, the thing with offering a fixed price for a productized service is that you're spreading your risk out across, you know, 10, 20, 30 clients. Some of them are going to be a slam dunk that you could have done for less money and felt fine, but some of them are going to be bigger scope than you thought. And it all kind of balances out if you've set your price point correctly. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, yeah, so the, this one was easy, but the next one's going to be hard. It all works out in the wash. And and the client, at the end of the day, the client does not care what your level of effort is. Yeah. They really don't. They care about getting that yes or no. And the yes or no is going to be worth probably even more to them if they can get it in a weekend instead of six months. And they do want fast results like because yeah. they are in a significant amount of discomfort mm -hmm. and stress, fear, anxiety with whatever situation is going on. Like they right. want out of, they want to know as fast as they can. Yeah. It's like the, you know, I think my wife's cheating on me, private detective scenario. Where yeah, you, they don't want to know six months rather, from now. <laughs> yeah, you'd rather <laughs> yes. know right away, and you'd rather yeah. you'd rather find out that you hired the person for nothing. Like, yes, because again, yes. it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing. It's for the peace of mind. It's a major. Yeah. Okay, so 
if we, so we talked about a productized service and maybe breaking it into bands or in my opinion getting more focused in who your target market is so you don't need bands just pick the biggest mm-hmm. one um and don't work with smaller companies like why yes. would you work with smaller companies unless you have like yep. some kind of uh, affinity for them that's fine but just if you're going to create three bands just do the top one yep so you know if you're not prepared to spend fifty thousand dollars to get a yes or a no to is my partner cheating on me then don't hire me hire someone else who mm-hmm. will do it by the hour yeah. for a hundred bucks yeah so, here's three names right right so you know if that makes me sound, mer- sound mercenary it, it, just realize that at the end of the day you have to pick who you're going to serve and if you're if you don't care between the small mom and pops and the regional chains restaurant chains then pick the biggest one or pick the one that you want to serve the most or pick the mom and pops. I don't care. Pick the one that you want to be the, you know, that you, you really want to help and then just come up with ways that you can serve them. That's profitable to you and they're happy to pay for. So, uh, but if you don't care, if you really don't care and you're like, well, I could do companies from 10 to 50 employees and 50 to 300 and then 300 to a thousand. Well, just forget about the ones that are, forget about the two small ones. Cause you don't care anyway. And just go after the bigger ones because they're gonna they're going to care more and therefore value your answer more. Yeah, and it'll be worth more. It'll be worth more to them and to you, and you can have fewer of them, and it makes life easier. Right, you can do a better job exactly because you can charge more and then be less busy. Yep. Okay, so so you so again that was sort of productized service approach. You could do the value pricing approach, which raises the same concerns actually. But instead of having a published price on your website, you'd have a uh, a sales page where people, you know, the call to action would be like set up a 15 minute phone call to see if we'd be a good fit. And they get on the phone with you and they describe their situation. And then you basically try and read them using what I call the why conversation to say, well, how big a deal is this? What if, how much is this bothering you? What happens if, what does it mean for the business? If you get a yes, what, what does it mean for the business? If you get a no, um, what does it mean for the business? If it turns out that I need to go into, you know, this like protracted, uh, discovery or whatever you would call it, the the actual inve- the the mm-hmm. deeper dive investigation to really find out the extent of the problem. But I think mm-hmm. for this particular thing, assuming that a diagnostic phase is possible in all cases, it does seem impossible or at least unlikely to to be able to give like a project proposal to somebody without knowing if you're going to have a yes or a no to the is my business partner cooking the books question. So. Unless the person is basically 100% confident that something's going on and you can skip that phase and they're like, no, I know something's going on. And you're like, okay, well, let's talk about uh, a project then. And it's just like any other project, I would assume, again, I'm from the outside, so I don't know, but they're going to want some kind of outcome. Could be that they they don't care about getting the money back and they just want to uh, see their partner publicly shamed or like end up in jail or um, they they actually don't want to to have any public shaming of the partner um, they just want to have like a quiet amicable breakup mm-hmm. and um, and or maybe they really care about the money they really need the money they're going to have to fire a whole bunch of employees because of this embezzling and that's their biggest concern so those i imagine again i have no idea about the mechanics and how much work this would actually be but in a situation like that where the cpa every everybody's in agreement that something's going on and they just need someone to come in and figure out figure out how to achieve the goal that the buyer wants of the three different ones or some combination of those three things or others that i'm not even smart enough to think of and at that point is a normal value conversation it's like well 
I can do that for you, but why would I? Why not do it yourself? Why not get someone cheaper? I'm going to be the most expensive option for sure. Um, why not go with, I don't know, you you name a big, like, uh, who's a big accounting firm? I don't know. Like, yeah, why not? Like KPMG or Pricewaterhouse. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Why not go with them? And, you know, why hire me? And you just get them to answer all these questions. And, you know, this is the art part of value pricing. What makes it so hard mm-hmm. is you need to get a sense of what it's worth to them. What number can you put in front of them to say, you know, it's going to be $100,000 and they're going to be like, yeah, that's worth it. That's totally worth it. That's worth these Mm -hmm. outcomes. So if we're past the point where there's a question about whether or not malfeasance is occurring and it's more a question of like, I want to get back some percentage of the half a billion dollars that was, we believe was embezzled or appears to be missing, then there's, you know, all kinds of, I mean, you could just come up with three levels of involvement where let's say level one is um, you oversee their internal bookkeepers and you're not actually doing the digging. You're using their internal bookkeepers as a team, but you're kind of guiding them and telling them what to look for. could be a middle option where you bring in your own people. You do it yourself, uh, just by yourself, and you dig through everything. And then maybe there's a third option where you bring in a team of people so that it can be done more quickly. You know, you can bring in 10 people and cover more bases more quickly. And each one of those would have a different price point, but it would all be contingent on the value being there for the client in the first place. So if you're right, so if you're working with a really small company, there's going to be less value there than if you're working with a really big company. So if you're playing the value price game, the, especially if you don't have a lot of employees or you're a small firm or a soloist and you want to really, really increase the value that you can provide and therefore the fees that you can charge, then your path to growth is becoming more famous, becoming like a famous forensic accountant and getting bigger customers, you know, so people who have more money to throw around. So if you imagine, if you imagine I have this sort of thing I call the max price formula, and it's a mental model for thinking about how much someone is going to be willing to pay for something. And it only has three components. First is desire. The second, so it's desire times buying power. I don't know why I'm writing this down at the same time, but (laughs) I am too (laughs) desire times buying power divided by availability of options. And this works for Hmm. pretty much anything. So whether it's um, a Rolex or a new car or whatever. So if if you come across somebody, so you're, you're, you know, you're Tom Smith uh, accountant and you come across, I don't know, Jeff Bezos is like, I think uh, somebody is cooking the books over here at Amazon. Uh, and then you're like, okay. Are you, and he's, he's like completely freaking out. His, he like wants to get this figured out so bad. He's sure it's happening. Uh, he doesn't know what to do about it, but he knows something needs to be done. And he wants to like, you know, wants thunder and lightning to come down and it, just like destroy his enemies. Okay. Mm-hmm. So his desire is extremely high. His buying power is literally the highest. <laughs> yeah. And what happens next? Availability of options. Are you, have you, have you uh, positioned yourself as the go-to person on the whole wide world, planet earth as the go-to person for forensic accounting for massive e-commerce companies or fortune 500 companies or whatever the case may be? Are you the only, are you basically the only choice? And all, all Jeff Bezos wants to know is, can you, do you have time in your calendar to take this on? Money is no object. Uh, I need, I want this done immediately and we don't even want to talk to anybody else. You're the person. So obviously you can charge crazy amounts of money if you've done the work to set yourself up as the rock star of forensic accounting for, you know, digital mm-hmm. e-commerce fortune 50 companies. Right. 
then you become the only person. So if, if on the other hand, you're not the one and only, and you are just one of many accountants, then their desire and buying power can be incredibly high, like approaching infinity. But if, if you do not appear meaningfully different from the next person, then they're just going to go with the cheapest one. So, yeah. Yeah, this is, this problem comes up, this exact problem comes up because Mm -hmm. the desire is absolutely there. And my clients will say that the client who's suspicious comes to them and says like money, money's no object. I don't care. I want to know. And I want to know as fast as I can. And what the CPA will do will price themselves by saying, great, it's 225 an hour. I'm neither the most expensive. They're 400 an hour. I'm either the least expensive. They're 125 an hour. They play it safe right in the middle, mm-hmm. making themselves look just like everybody else and mm-hmm. sort of almost immediately diminishing their value because they are just like everybody else Mm -hmm. and makes you go, okay, I mean, I guess I'll go with you because my attorney recommended you, but that doesn't add any value by making you appear, making yourself appear as if you're a commodity. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't, it's, it's bad. If you look like, honestly, I just have this picture in my mind and this is going to sound like absolute heresy, probably to an accountant type of person. But like the first thing I would do is get a mohawk and put on a leather jacket and pants. (laughs) <laughs> right away you're the badass forensic accountant and you play up the law you know the cops and robbers piece put a little a, orange siren on your roof yeah nose ring the whole thing and be like you know I, and that is going to repel i mean i wouldn't do that if it was just fake but if you have that in you and you probably yeah. i don't know i don't, I don't want to make broad stereotypes about accountants but i'm sure there's an accountant who was a punk rocker in the 80s and it's like, and then like push that down and doesn't, is just like, oh, that's in the past or whatever. So I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect. But the idea is if you totally stand out from the crowd, honestly, it's the only hope in this scenario, in this scenario, if you want to increase your fees, if you've already, if you've got plenty of people that have high desire and high buying power, your only hope is to increase your uniqueness. And that mm-hmm. could be your approach. It could be your worldview. It's probably not your process because the client's not going to care about that. It's mm-hmm. it's like, well, that's just like you're professional. You show up on time or whatever. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you like do whatever it takes to get the job done. You're this lone wolf bounty hunter forensic accountant. Maybe you have a TV show. You know, like you need to do something to be special, to be different. Otherwise, you're going to just be in this like, you know, Google for a forensic accountant and a list of names come up and they like look at yeah. their hourly rates. And then it's like, you don't want people Googling forensic accountant. You want them Googling for your name. Yeah. I, there are a couple of pieces in there. And I think one of them is that they're likely to get recommended by the attorney. And I think this is where some sort of money kind of mental money fear comes in is that attorneys are also notorious for billing by the hour. And if, and the fear is that if I raise my rate, the attorney's not going to recommend me. He's going to go with the next cheapest guy. Mm-hmm. But the other one is that I very much see accountants and many of the ones who come to me and I have, you know, blonde spiky hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, many of them say to me, I'm not your ordinary accountant. I have spunk, I have personality, I have kind of flair. And it's like somehow they give themselves permission in this space to really be themselves. I do think that there's a force that um, in the industry that kind of pushes everybody into a white press button down shirt. And they mm-hmm. all think that they need to be that way. And secretly, all of them are desiring to get out of that. Yes. So what you're talking about, about, you know, not every woman's going to go and give herself a mohawk and wear leather, whatever. But the sentiment I think is appreciated that you can kind of play up the not well that you can really just lean into 
who you naturally want to be as a forensic accountant in that role and let that come out of you. Let that, you know, let that be known because that's going to attract the right people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's going to differentiate yourself. You will absolutely separate yourself from the crowd of accountants who still are in the sort of white press button down. Right. And your point about the lawyer recommendations is a really good one. So imagine that you are so well known that you didn't depend on those sorts of referrals where, you know, let's say you do, uh, let's say you've got a world changing idea about accounting and the sort of cops and robbers aspects of it. And, you know, your tagline is like the forensic bounty hunter and, you know, you know, you dress up like Mad Max and you get a TED talk. Now, everybody who's sitting in that mm. TED audience, plus every, the millions of people who will watch that talk, they know you directly and you're the, the go-to person for whatever your big idea is, whatever this big idea that you had your TED talk about is. Maybe it's, uh, you know, and I'm just completely going to make myself sound like an idiot here, but let's say it's about um, government waste or third world economies or, um, or rock stars, you know, rock star agents or whatever, like you're, you've got a thing, you stand for something and you're clearly different than anybody else. And you increase awareness of your uniqueness to an audience of people that have really high buying power. So you don't really, I mean, referrals are always nice. And if a lawyer wants to refer you, that's fabulous. But why depend on them when you could raise your own profile and be this, this, the one and only thing of whatever it is. And, and it, I'm glad to hear that it seems like that's lurking inside many of your uh, clients. The, the fear though, is letting that out when you, when you let that out, or it's the same, it's, it's, it's like making a decision. It's a strategic decision to be different and being different goes against your lizard brain because that was not the way that you survived, you know, mm -hmm. back in the million years ago, that's not how you survived. Standing out from the crowd was a great way to get killed. So it was risky and it feels risky to your lizard brain, but now it's the exact opposite of risky. It's risky to be with the crowd. Because in a world where every single accountant is a Google search away, like globally, every single accountant is a Google search away. And if they're all presenting themselves with, I like your white press shirt appearance, I can't tell the difference between any of these people. I'm not an accountant. I don't know anything about this. So I'm going to pick the cheapest one or, or probably the second cheapest one because the cheapest one's probably bad. <laughs> yes. <Yep. laughs> so... And, and, you know, let's not even get into like an hourly rate isn't a price and therefore you don't really know who's cheapest. You really just know which one has self more or less self-confidence. Yeah. So there's this piece in here that I keep coming back to for accountants, and this is maybe slightly on a tangent, but when you said increase awareness of uniqueness, I can feel every CPA listening to the show going, <gasps> you want mm -hmm. me to do what now? Mm -hmm. And there's a real, I think, aversion to being unique there's very much a safety in numbers. And if you look at the industry from the outside in, they very much look the same and they say the same things in their marketing that they offer a broad range of expertise on a variety of topics and they can serve everybody and do all things and be all things to all people and they all look the same that way. And I think that, well, I don't know whether that's an intentional conscious decision or just the way the industry has set, the, set things up, but... Um, but standing out from the crowd is for them going to be a tall order. Yeah. Well, you then stay cheap. <laughs> I mean, it's look, it's Suit up yourself. To you. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just accountants. It's plenty of people. I mean, I get the same thing with web developers and designers and so on and so forth. So it, it's totally common. 
Um, I, I admit that probably on average, you don't want an accountant with a mohawk. But if we're talking specifically about this cops and robbers forensic stuff, I don't really, I would love it personally. I'm not the buyer, but you know, theoretically, I could know someone who uh, runs a business and is like, you know what, I think my partner's doing, I'm sure my partner's doing something. I'm like, well, you know who'd be a good fit for you? The forensic bounty hunter. I saw her do a TED talk. You should check it out. And what would what would be your assumption if you needed to hire or recommend a forensic accountant that had given a TED talk? What would be your assumption about their pricing, high or low? I would think it would be high, and it would be worth every penny. Exactly, expensive but worth it. Thank you. That's a, that's that's my catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> so you would automatically be like, I probably can't even get this person's attention to give them my money, and probably can't even afford it. So now, if you're an accountant listening to this. What would that do for your sales interviews if the everyone coming to you was assuming that you were in the power position and they probably can't even afford you and you probably don't even have time for them? That the, It turns the beauty contest around the other way. So the accountant mm-hmm. gets to pick the best clients instead of the client picking the best accountant. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then you get to pick exactly who you want to work with. You pick the best clients who you think are going to get, you're going to be able to get the best results with. Mm-hmm. And then you're on a continuous virtuous cycle. Exactly. You can make a meaningfully, uh, Im- meaningful improvement to your ability to do good work <laughs> because you have the budget to do it. You've, you're attracting the kind of clients who you're going to work best with. So you get fewer red flag nightmare clients. It's, mm-hmm. it's just great all the way around, but you know, the, the lizard brain wanting you to fit in is a major, it's, it's tough to rationalize your way around it because it's very, it feels very scary. And you, you used a phrase earlier, safety in numbers that doesn't pass the sniff test. Like what kind of, you know, like CPAs are not group. Like what, what do you think they even mean if they said something like that? Are they all partnered up? <laughs> like, so I don't think that they would say it consciously. That's not something that I've actually heard them say. It, that's just okay. how it manifests. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, the prehistoric plane, that was true. But there are no saber-toothed tigers now. The thing that The thing that is dangerous to you now is obscurity. So if you don't stand out from the crowd, that's less safe for your business. Yeah, right. It's yeah. risky business it's the to just look like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's the as you're, as you're telling me the story of the, or as we're sort of imagining the cops and robbers forensic accountant, I'm actually reminded of a woman who I know whose thing is pink collar crime. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. 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 <laughs> so I can already it tell actually what that exists. is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's really successful and she's known specifically for what she does. And she, I mean, she's well known and she's the go-to person for women in business who mm-hmm. are suspicious of other women involved in pink collar crime. Love it. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a case in point. We have an example that we know is viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't know if she has a little pink plastic, like water gun in her holster. I'll have to find out. <laughs> that would be so great. Like all of her fountain pens are pink or something. Or like she has a, a gun shaped pink pen. Okay. Probably too far. <laughs> So the so the thing that we're talking, we we sort of initially started talking about this in terms of you know what is the what's the pricing model for something where you don't know how much work it's going to take, and we kind of pivoted into well you know you need there needs to be high desire you said that's really not a problem in these cases uh, there needs to be high buying power uh, I'm sure it's a big range but you could skew 
you know, from, from people who care about this and are prepared to hire a forensic accountant, they're probably doing, you know, a couple million dollars a year or they wouldn't even bother. So, okay. Yeah, certainly anything. I mean, there's, there's absolutely, I mean, there's small crime, right? But there's plenty of big. So yeah. there's, so that's not a, there's ample people who have buying power. Mm -hmm. And so that leaves the denominator, the availability of options. So if you don't affect that, it doesn't really matter if you use um, a productized service fixed pricing type of thing or an ongoing advisory retainer type of thing or a value-based proposal type of thing. Because if you appear the same or uh, not meaningfully different, like you might know you're different from the next person, but if the client doesn't see you different in a way that matters to them, the one thing they can understand is the price and maybe a couple of other things like maybe if you give fixed prices and other people are billing by the hour, there's a, a risk component. But in general, if you don't give them something that they see as a difference, they are for you're forcing them to judge you based on your price. And they're not going to, some people will do this, but it's, it's the minority. Some people will pick the most expensive option because they assume that's the best. But if you come in and you're like reasonably confident, you're no more confident than anyone else. And you don't have anything that seems really different about you. And you know, you're, they're not going to be able to brag that they hired you to their friends at the club because your name is not well known. Like there's nothing in it for them to pick you the more expensive option over, you know, plan B, which is half the price. So whatever approach that you use to pricing your, your services or billing for your time or anything, it, you will never get around the, that you need to appear meaningfully different to your clients in some way. If you ever want to get out of sort of like reach escape velocity and get into the mm -hmm. stratosphere of high fees. So if I come back to this at a high level, the, the, the steps or the phases, it seems to me like multiple phases, right? And we've got phase one is, di is something like diagnose, right? Or under understand and diagnose. It's like discovery, right? Yeah. Well, I guess that's probably a loaded term in this case. But yeah, just find out if, if just a yes or no, is something going on? Yeah, is something going on? Okay, it's phase one of the... Um, Yes, no. Okay. And then the second phase is more meaningful digging. What is the extent to which this has been happening? How mm -hmm. much for how long? How bad is it? And so mm -hmm. on. How bad is it? Yeah. Yeah. So yes or no. And then how bad is it? Right. And then phase three, which we haven't talked about, would seem to me like representation in court, mm -hmm. right? Because you may get an answer to the question, how bad is it? Maybe not that bad. And we don't want to take them to court. So you just want to settle or you just want to say, you know, it was only $20,000 worth of stealing. I'm just going to let it go and move on. Mm -hmm. Or you may find actually it was $500,000 and it's bad and it's worth it to go to court. So mm -hmm. um, court representation seems to be like the next phase of if you want me to show up in court, if you want me to present an argument, I'm going to have to like gather all my papers and figure out how to present it and make a meaningful case and so on. It seems like that would be phase three. I'm curious to know your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a couple things about the middle phase before we get there, but I do agree that that's probably, I, I am, I don't know enough about it to know, but if, if there needs to be a, it's kind of like a second phase of discovery, the how bad is it phase is probably going to affect the decision about whether or not they even want to go to court. So asking them to make a buying decision before you even know how bad it is would be, it's possible. I can imagine a subscription model where that's just included, but let's just let's just pretend it's three different phases, three different pricing decisions, uh, three different buying decisions for the client. In the how bad is it phase, that is, I imagine that that is the piece 
that is potentially the most scope creepy. Like that feels like the piece that could get way out of hand. Uh, I, can't, I can't imagine a court case dragging on for a long time, but you're not doing a court case 40 hours a week and for years, I don't think. So that feels less scopey. So I feel like if, we're, if we want to talk about how to price this potentially, um, uh, this piece that has a potentially wild range of level of effort, mm-hmm. you could, and how do we price that? So a couple of ways. Um, if you're the forensic bounty hunter, you can just say it's a million bucks. If you don't, you know, take it or leave it, just get someone else if you don't like it. You know, Jeff Bezos is going to say, yeah, fine. So you can, you know, I don't care, 10 million, whatever, write your own check. So that's mm-hmm. one approach. But if you're not talking to Ted, Ted Bezos, Jeff Bezos, then you, the, the solution to a potentially um, unbounded scope is to just set your price really high. Yeah. So that, that's one way to deal with the risk. And, and to get back to your, your um, guilt issue that some people might have, no, you're taking a huge risk by giving them a fixed price for something that could turn into three years worth of work. Yeah. But if you're great at your job and you did the first phase and you've got, you know, your first phase was just something going on and you've got a sense of, you've got a sense of the overall picture because you have done some preliminary discovery. Maybe you can get to a, a point where you can ballpark it so that, you know, maybe you hit a home run and you have a big profit because you got paid a hundred thousand dollars for three weeks of work or whatever seems like a big profit to you. And sometimes you're going to go over and it's going to feel like, you know, like, eh, I probably should have, I probably would have done better if I billed by the hour, but whatever. I made a, a fortune on the previous one and everybody wants it done faster, not slower. So, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons to not feel guilty about it. Yeah. Um, so another, another thing you could do, and this is, this may be a third rail in the space, but I've heard other accounting people talk about it. Ron Baker talks about this. Um, you could do a contingency fee on this phase. You could say, you know, I'll do... Yes, I agree. There's definitely something going on. And maybe I, you know, it's a really big company and it's probably a few million bucks. Then you say, well, how about this? I will find out how bad it is and you'll pay me 25% of however much uh, grift or whatever I find. Then they can't lose. You could potentially lose if it takes a lot of work and it turns out it was only like $50,000. But I feel like you would probably have a sense of that, you know, from the first phase, the yes or no phase. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, if it looks really bad, then maybe you go contingency pricing or you could just fix price really high and you take the risk. And then the third option, which is the normal option is, well, you can take the risk, dear client and pay me 500 bucks an hour or some high amount per hour. So it's like, Hey, you can pay me 500 bucks an hour and I'll just keep going until you tell me to stop. Or, uh, you can pay me a hundred thousand dollars and I'll tell you when I'm done or, uh, we can, you know, just do it some percentage contingency fee on however much, um, money I find embezzled. You pay me 25% of it. Okay. I need to clarify the details here. Mm-hmm. One, one more time through at a high level phase one is something going on. Yes. No, yep. but then there's a decision. There's a buying decision with two options before step two. One of them is set the price super high. But then I think you gave another option. So, yeah, I, th- I think there are three ways to price the second phase. One is okay. just do it hourly, which isn't really pricing, but you know that would right. maybe f- make people feel safe, and they could pre- potentially present that option to the buyer. You could present all three options to the buyer, although I I think that's a little uh, shows, overwhelming and yeah, and not, <laughs> you, need, not you need to recommend to the buyer what is best for them. Right, but I I could imagine any given CPA in this situation 
picking one of these three approaches based on their level of confidence from what they discovered in phase one. So if you've got really, really low confidence, then maybe you go hourly. I'm not going to chase you down and yell at you. If you've got really high confidence that there are millions of dollars on the table here, like you're, you're sure, you know, you're good at your job. You, your spider sense is tingling. This is going to be a huge amount of money. Then go with the contingency fee. And if it's somewhere in the middle and you're like, "Ah, I'm pretty sure something's going on here. Um, I don't want to take the client for a ride by just like this meter running on and on and on and on. So I'm just going to set a price that I'd be happy to do it for at the amount of work that I think it's going to be. And I'll take the risk so they don't have to worry about, you know, if it ends up taking longer than I expect, that's not, that's no skin off their nose. No problem. If it ends up taking less time than I expect, they're also going to be happy because they want it done sooner. So you're taking the risk instead of them. So, so those are the, those are the three things. Like the first one is they take all the risk hourly billing. Second one is you take all the risk fixed price. And the third one is you share the risk with the contingency pricing. Gotcha. Okay. So then the third phase, mm-hmm. which is the court piece, and we don't know how long the court situation is going to drag on. It could be over in a matter of months, or it could drag on for years, which it sometimes does. Yes. So what's the setup there? I would probably, I don't know what that would entail, but I have been involved with like, I've been sort of associated with people who have had court cases and they, they can go on forever. And there's like a lot, it's like little things here and there. It's not constant yeah. uh, in these experiences. Okay. So same with you. So, so that could be a scenario for a retainer where not, and I do not mean the lawyer sense of retainer where it's X number of hours per right. month, but instead is whatever, $10,000 a month for a 24 seven access hotline to my brain. So if anything comes up, uh, dear client, if your lawyer has a question, uh, if you need me to send you over some documentation, if you need me to fly to Chicago to sit in a courtroom for a week, uh, that's all covered. It's $10,000 a month. You, you can contact me as much or as little as you like, but you just know that I've got your back. And if you know, you've got, you know, I'll get back to you within 24 hours with any kind of question or request for material that you have. I'll, I'll be ready to address that. Okay. Maybe you tack travel on top of it, or maybe you include travel. If there's going to be a lot, you can just build it into your price. I, I, in the past with retainers, I always just, that was like a one-stop shop. You pay me 10 or $15,000 a month. If travel's involved, I just pay for it so that you don't have to mess around with that. I don't have to track my expenses. Yep. Okay. That's appealing because that's exactly how it rolls, right? Is you might not hear a peep for weeks or months. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they need something and they need you to appear in court Monday morning. Yep. And you've got to do a bunch of prep. So you need to price it, but but you know that the work is coming, you just don't know when. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the drips are inter they're intermittent, unpredictable, and not on a regular cadence. So the retainer allows for the flexibility, which is what they need mm-hmm. to accommodate for the, the uncertainty of what's coming, but we know that it's coming. Yeah. So the risk here is, is if you've got three, four, five, six clients like this, and you've got two court dates on opposite sides of the planet in the same week. So there, there need to be some kind of, you know, reasonable accommodation for that. Um, some kind of notice, some kind of flexibility, I suppose, or you just, you know, you price this really high and, or you could say like, well, uh, I do these retainers. If you want me to kind of be at your beck and call, we can create an exclusive arrangement where I don't take on any other retainer clients. I don't do any court work, but you have to pay me $30,000 a month to kind of keep me waiting by the phone. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. if they if they feel like there's going to be a lot of court dates or it's like a particular they know that the, the spring of 2021 is going to be really really litigious or I don't know if, how much they can predict the future um, but that to me that is a clear potential risk um, whenever I've done I did retainers advisory retainers for a long time it was very profitable and when I was doing consulting work still and I could only really handle three at the most. I liked two was the perfect number. Two was two was like part-time work, if that, with occasional travel. And it was never like something that had to be scheduled with a third party that couldn't, like there was never a situation where the schedule couldn't be adjusted. I don't know how much flexibility there is with court dates, but you can, you can delay court dates. So I, I think there's probably a way around this, this limitation, but it would be something to, you know, keep in mind. It's like, um, someone anyway someone with more experience with this will probably know probably is right now being like no i know what i would do you can stop talking about this <laughs> but if you you know if you uh if you are the forensic bounty hunter and you say to somebody look yeah okay we found out it's a hundred million dollar embezzlement thing uh the person's whatever they're in in sri lanka and we're trying to get him back and we just need you to be uh, i just need to be able to call you like when something happens and there's going to be at the drop of a hat you might need to fly to court whatever it's like Mm -hmm. all right you can keep me on you know retainer and it would be an exclusive arrangement with just you mr bezos and it's fifty thousand dollars a month and i won't take in on any other clients uh for this particular service uh during that time and meanwhile so you're getting 50 grand a month from jeff bezos meanwhile you can still do these yes or no engagements and the um, how bad is it engagements because those aren't going to have like a court date or something like that. And most of the time you're just mm-hmm. going to be sitting around. Yeah, right. Okay, because there are going to be some bunch of when CPAs hear this, they might go, what do I do with the rest of my business? But if you can fill it with other things that are a little bit less time dependent that might be able to wait a few days, then you can you have that sort of um, you've got yourself spread out. Yeah, and guess what else you can do? Marketing. You can get that <laughs> TED Talk. Yes, yes. You can get the Mohawk. You can, <laughs> right, yeah. You can work on the shtick. So yeah. this is so interesting because there's, within these three phases, there are at least three different ways of pricing. Correct. And I wouldn't have gotten to this on my own to oh. have like these, to price different segments differently. I would have mm. either value priced all of them or contingency priced all of them or retainer priced all of them mm-hmm. but i wouldn't have mixed and ma- mixed and matched yeah they're meaningfully different each of these different phases is definitely they're they're sort of gated gated milestones like yeah. if, if you find a, if you find a no in stage one there's nothing left to do so making a buying decision before that about stages yeah. two and three makes no sense so yeah it's so and and the i mean to me it's like well, you these three things fall neatly into first stage falls neatly into a productized service description, you know, fixed scope for a fixed amount, you know, um, and then the second phase fits neatly into a project arrangement, custom project arrangement that's going to have a, a relatively fluid scope uh, from client to client and, and maybe unpredictable scope on a given client. So it makes sense to you know, to either do hourly or fixed, you know, value price fixed or um, contingency, uh, because those are the things that you would do for a project. And then the last one is a perfect fit for an advisory retainer. So, which I would price just as a subscription model. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. I love it. Cool. You may just be altering how this gets priced throughout the industry. (laughs) That'd be cool. I'd also like to see some mohawks and leather jackets. That's just me. (laughs) I want to see the pink water gun. 
No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. lady revolver. Right. Sorry, I'm actually not a guns person. No, me neither. So I but, shouldn't right. <laughs> choke here. It's the cops and robbers thing. So the the <laughs> thing about the thing that's um, I can imagine that people are white shirt people are going to listen to this and they're going to think of people like your pink color crime person and and have a sort of reaction like oh that's just gimmicky or that that's um not what's the right word not respectable or something yeah or like kind of kitschy or yeah like too coy or corny or something like that and it's Mm -hmm. like i i'm not asking i would never suggest to anybody to do something that didn't feel authentic or uh or corny or gimmicky like definitely not like don't do that everyone will see through that they'll see it a mile Mm -hmm. away but find the thing that's real. Find the real thing that's different about you or your business or your worldview, or maybe you've got a contrarian position about the whole industry, but find something that makes you really different. Something you could do a TED Talk about, like uh, just, I, or, or write a book about, like a best-selling book about. But I like the TED Talk thing because it forces people to think big because they know what TED Talks are like and they understand that they really make you think and that sort of thing. So like, what about your industry could you present to a mainstream audience or a mainstream as mainstream as a TED audience, it's probably not mainstream, but like non non CPA audience, what thing from your world could you translate into something thought provoking to a group of non CPAs in an extremely unique or contrarian or world changing kind of way? And then, and that you find yourself getting passionate about and then like just double down on that. And maybe it doesn't involve, you know, a leather jacket, maybe it does but do something authentic that makes you different and and you should be afraid of fitting in with the crowd that should scare the crap out of you yeah yeah it's cool. i mean it's why people are it's why so many cpas are just stuck working stupid hours and getting underpaid compared to the value they provide yeah it's cuz they don't do what you're suggesting mhm Right. I mean, and of course, you know, you mentioned, I think I mentioned Ron Baker already and you've interviewed him before too, right? So yeah, um, it it's worth checking into his subscription stuff. Like his, he calls it value pricing 3.0, although I kind of, I would argue with him about that title, but um, he, he calls it value pricing 3.0 or subscription business model. I think if you are going to be a white shirt and you don't have a mohawk in you, then the subscription model, just like we're in your corner, we will, you're covered you're covered. Like, don't worry about anything. Whatever happens, you're covered. And, you know, the way he would say it, and I agree with this approach. It's not my, it's not my jam to do it like this, but it, I, I'm positive it would work is to just have all of your clients on a subscription, like, you know, Porsche passport. It, like, like if Porsche can have a subscription to their cars, you can yeah. have a subscription to your service business. Yes. It's definite. Like they're managing, you just have to manage the risk. So you, you would like look across your portfolio of clients and you, you, you know, some people are going to be less work. Some people are going to be more work, but you, as long as you, uh, as long as it's working out on balance, then you can just get to work and have fun and, and, you know, doing what you love to do without the clock ticking and fighting about invoices. And why did it take so long this time? And you, you have predictable revenue, all of the, the fun things about a subscription model come to pass. You just have to take a little bit of risk or mitigate the risk of some clients being problem children and some, you know, and that'll just balance out with the, the, the kids that are low maintenance. Yeah. And I want to, there's this piece in here about what makes you appear different and translate to the thought provoking. And I think that as you implement this model of three phases, if you will, 
Mm-hmm. And you work with clients in the same who are in the same band of size. Yep. You start to you see the patterns that only you can see because your data set of clients is unique to you. Right. And so because I was over here thinking like, what's the thing that's going to that's going to be thought provoking to an audience? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think where the where there's so much advantage that you don't realize that you have until you get there is your own private data set that you can pull comparisons and insights from that 100%. other mm-hmm. people will go, oh, wow, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. That yeah, is so interesting all, to think about. So. Yeah, sorry. It creates all kinds of leverage. You can create new value-added products just based off of that data set that's unique to you that it would make you the go-to person for people like them if you get really specific with what people like them is. And it could be yes. it could be a, a vertical, you know, like used car dealerships or Fortune 500 companies, or it could be something uh, more psychographic like um, environmentalists or Democrats or, you know, whatever, li- libertarians or whatever. It doesn't matter. It could be... Yeah, or like divorcees. Yeah, right. Perfect. That's a great one. So, you know, to people who divorce well, <laughs> as, as my yeah. friend says. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it and I love the way that you... Um, position that you said it's the kind of thing you won't recognize until you're there it's like you, you it's tough to predict what is going to happen but if you do go down the rabbit hole you're going to find things down there that no one else has ever found that will allow you to deliver more valuable results to this niche that you've focused on yeah yeah and you don't even know i would take it a step further even that you don't even know that you're going to find a pattern mm-hmm. it's not even something that's sort of in your consciousness until you start to see the pattern because you've got the consistent data set mm-hmm. yeah. and then you go oh i didn't know this was going to be here exactly yeah it's like people think they're going to get bored when they get really focused but in fact it's, <laughs> yeah, no, it's much the opposite. more interesting yeah yeah it is it's so much more interesting yeah yeah cool okay well this has been super super fun for me i hope you have found it useful I have found it incredibly useful and it's been really fun. Cool. Well, where can folks go uh, to connect with you online in case they're a CPA or they know a CPA and they want to get some sort of coaching or something or just ask you a follow-up question? Sure. Yeah. So people can find me at my website. It's shethinksbigcoaching.com. And since you have podcast listeners in your audience, if they want to check out my podcast, it's smart strategies for CPAs. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Geraldine. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jonathan. This has been a pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join us again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. 
Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.